All right, the rest of us, let's take out our Bibles and find Romans chapter 8 once again. So we'll continue in our series in Romans, Romans chapter 8, and our primary text this week will be verses 5 through 11. Verses 5 through 11, but what I want to do is begin reading in verse 1, and I'll just read these 11 verses. And then we'll pray as usual, and we'll jump into the passage. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. These are the very words of God. Let's just pause and ask His blessing on these verses. Father, we thank You that You have spoken to us and that You still speak to us through Your Word. Father, we need the reminder of the presence of the Spirit in us, not just this morning, but every day, His powerful working and fulfillment of Your promise to save us from our sins. We, I believe, Lord, most people in this room want to live in a way that pleases You and we want to glorify You in our lives and in our bodies. And yet we still sense the presence of sin within us and temptations and failures and setbacks that become so discouraging. And so, Lord, encourage us now. May the one who is called alongside to help, who is dwelling within us, encourage us with your presence and power and help. And I need your help this morning to teach and to preach in a way that is beneficial for your people and 
pleasing in your sight. So will you please enable me to do that? We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we've already looked at verses 1 through 4. That's what we finished last week as we studied verses 2 through 4. But just to remind you, because it connects directly then into verse 5, where we're going to be picking up this morning, Paul's assuring the people of God that there is no condemnation for them. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the same thing he said back in chapter 5, that we have been justified by faith in Christ, and therefore we have peace with God. That means there is no, just, no condemnation for you. It's virtually saying the same thing if you're in Christ. To be in Christ is to be trusting in Him. Like you are staking everything in the person and work of Christ, just as we just sang in the song, Come Ye Sinners. You're venturing all on Christ. You're not leaning into anything else or trusting to any degree in your own performance. You're just trusting in Christ, and therefore you know you are justified, and therefore you know you are not condemned. And then he gave those wonderful reasons in verses 2 and 3, great gospel reasons. The first one is that you've received now the Spirit of God in you, and He is the Spirit who brings new life to dead sinners. So you're alive in Christ Jesus and have been set free from the law of sin and death in you. God would have left you in that condition. You would have followed sin right into the grave and then right into eternity, apart from God forever, but He didn't leave you in that condition, and He's given you the Holy Spirit now dwells within you and imparts the very life of Christ Himself into you. And then in verse 3, of course, the other reason He mentioned is through the work of Christ, His own eternal Son who became a man, in every way was human without sin, sin accepted, and that way for sin, for our sin, God can condemn him in the flesh. He bore our sins in his body on that tree. So we are completely forgiven of our sins. The power of sin is broken in our lives through the Spirit. And then in verse 4, the result of all of this, a wonderful result is that the people of God now, with the Holy Spirit within them, can fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Not in the sense that Christ fulfilled it for us, that's important distinction, but the righteous requirement of the law can now be fulfilled by the people of God because they have the Spirit of God and they've been set free from the law of sin and death. And that's a wonderful thing to be reminded of. We talked about the connection to Romans 7 in Romans 8 and how you go through these times and the your indwelling sin is exposed and it can become so discouraging that you don't even know what to do with it. And you can feel as though there is no hope for you to be anything more than, I guess, just a forgiven sinner. But certainly I can never learn and be able to obey God and live in a way that pleases Him. Well, that's the way the devil would like you to think, of course because he would like you to forget about the Spirit of God in you and the power of the Spirit in you. And the far 
infinite greater power of the one that is in you than the one who is in the world, you see. That we as the people of God can live and should live and will live, as he'll go on to say, beginning in verse 5, in a way that pleases him, you see. We can fulfill the righteous law of God in our hearts. I want to show you a connecting verse just before we jump into verse 5. Look at, look at chapter 13 in verse 8. What is the righteous requirement of the law from chapter 8, verse 4, that is fulfilled in us by the Spirit? What is he talking about, about like, uh, when he mentions that? Look at verse 8 of chapter 13. Where Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. Now notice this. For the one one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Paul says that these things have been done for us in chapter 8 through Christ and His Spirit in, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And then he clarifies here what he means in chapter 13 verse 8. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now listen to this. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, all coming from the Ten Commandments, and any other commandment of the law are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And do you remember this? From Galatians 5, let's put those verses up here, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit in a Christian is, first one, love. What the Spirit produces in us is love in the fulfillment of God's law. Loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And He produces this fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Notice this, against such things there is no law, you see. These are the fulfillment within us of the righteous requirement of law, and it comes, notice this, by the Spirit. And it isn't something that the natural person, by natural I mean the person who doesn't have Christ in the Spirit, it's not something they can do. Now, they can fulfill the law to a degree externally, of course. There is an external righteousness that it could be achieved by the law. Paul talks about this. He tried to do that as a Pharisee. You can obey the rules to a degree, but not in you, you see. Not from the heart. This must come through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. This is why in Galatians 5, Paul will go on to say the key then to not fulfilling the lust of the flesh is to learn to walk by the Spirit, to keep in step with Him in the way in which He's leading you in these righteous ways in paths to not grieve Him or quench His work within us. And friends, all of this, of course, back in Romans chapter 8, is to fulfill prophecies about this new covenant time that you and I have the great privilege of living in. Like Jeremiah 31, 33, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Guess what? You're a recipient of that promise if you're in Christ. Or how about what we read earlier in our liturgy, Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my spirit within you, listen, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
I think that something that happens when we get trapped into sin and patterns of sin that become so discouraging is we have a tendency to forget about the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. And interestingly, in those times, yes, we can, we'll, we'll be looking to Christ as we should. And we're thinking about the wonderful way in which our righteous Savior died for our sins. How we are forgiven of all those sins and how we're justified in Him. But let's not forget that through Christ you receive the Spirit. Because in those moments you not only need to be reminded of your justification, but the powerful sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit within you so that you don't need to stay trapped in those sins that are making you so miserable and robbing you of the joy and peace that God really desires for you to have. A joy and and peace, yes, in justification, but even that next step in holiness. Because one of the things that God does in a, in a true believer's heart is impress upon that heart this real delight in doing what God says and being obedient to God and loving God as they ought and loving their neighbor as they ought. So we need to be reminded of the presence of the Spirit in us. This is, I'm convinced, why really the first 11 verses, maybe even further than that, up into verse 16 and 17, exist in Romans, right on the heels of Romans 7, to just remind them of the presence of the Spirit within them, how important it is for us to know that. Now, let me transition here as we begin walking through these verses and just make this observation. Within the verses we read, and especially in verses you know, uh, 5 through 11, there are only presented to us two categories of human beings. There are only two kinds of human beings in this world. I know we like to categorize people in all different kinds of groups. That started back in school. I remember when I was in school, you had the stoners, and they would wear Metallica t-shirts and had mullets, and you had the preppies, and they would wear their collared shirts, and they'd put them up, you know, and you had the jocks and all these different people. We categorize people in all different kinds of ways. But conveniently enough, the Bible puts all of human beings in two different groups. There are those, on the one hand, according to what Paul has been teaching us here, who are of the Spirit. That means they have Christ through faith and the Spirit within them. We would call them spiritual people. I'm just a little cautious with that term because you know we all run into people that say, oh, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. No, we're talking about true spiritual people because within them they have the Spirit of God. And then the other category of human beings are those who do not have the Spirit. They are of the flesh. Or as we read earlier from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, they're natural people. They're just human beings, every human being born in this condition, but they're void of the Spirit of God. He does not reside in their hearts. Those are the really the only two important classifications of people and determining which one you're in. Are you of the Spirit or of the flesh is of eternal significance. Amen. 
That's what Paul is teaching here. As an example, those who are in the flesh, if you look at verse 5, it says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And then he says in verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is what? It's death. The result of the natural man or woman, the person without the Spirit, is nothing but dead. And just by way of reminder, we were all in that condition, right? You were all dead in trespasses and sins when you were born into this world. But the end of that is death, it is condemnation. Remember the whole heading here in Romans 8 is under that heading of no condemnation to those who are in Christ, but we made a big deal by saying, but for those who aren't in Christ, there is condemnation. For those who are not of the Spirit, there is condemnation, they're of the flesh. But for those of us of the Spirit, there is, verse 6, the result is not death, but it is life and peace, eternal life, age-lasting life that goes on into eternity in glory and peace with God now and forevermore. As a matter of fact, in these verses that we read, those who are of the Spirit are guaranteed full and final salvation. Did you catch that in verse 11? If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells within you. That's a picture of the final resurrection. As Christ was raised by the power of the Spirit, God's Spirit raising and bringing Him to new life, so too will you. Your body will be raised in the end. You will be glorified with Christ. It's guaranteed to you. That's why it's so essential that you ensure that you are a person of the Spirit. That is, how do we do that? We look to Jesus Christ and we trust in Him. You know, Paul told Timothy, he said, do the work of an evangelist, Timothy. I'm doing the work of the evangelist right now. I'm proclaiming eternal life to everyone in this room through faith in Jesus Christ and faith in Him alone. Through Him, you can be brought into this wonderful place of Romans 8. So turn from your sin and look to Jesus Christ and just trust in the one who promises to save sinners, you see. The whole mission of his life was summed up in his name, Yeshua, which means the Lord saves. So come to the Lord, you see, for salvation. Look to him now and believe in him. Trust in his person and work. He does not turn away sinners. That is one thing Jesus will not do. Anyone who comes to him for salvation and trust in him, he will not turn them away. It's his promise. This is why he came into this world. So there are only two categories of people in this room. Which are you? Well, how do we know? This passage gives us some identifiers 
For those who are of the flesh or those who are of the Spirit, there's actually going to be some identifiers in their lives. We see the first one there in verse 4, at the end of verse 4. He says, Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, that word walk is really important to understand in Paul's way of thinking. He wants you to understand what he means here. That isn't describing the gait of somebody as they stroll down the street. You know, you can't tell by the way I use my walk that I'm a spiritual man, okay? Little Bee Gees slip in there for some of you. That's worldly. I shouldn't have said it. But you can't tell just by the way somebody walks that they are a Christian. He's talking about their conduct in life, the way they pattern their life. It's used really metaphorically of behavior, someone's behavior, their walk in life, the way you could kind of generally describe them and how they live in this world. Spiritual people will walk according to the Spirit, whereas people of the flesh will walk according to the flesh. The general direction of his or her life will be either spiritual or fleshly, you see. There are going to be two different ways in which they live you should be able to just tell the difference in the way of life, a general pattern of life between God's people and the rest of the world. As a matter of fact, this is the way God has always wanted it to be. You think back to Old Testament Israel, and God redeems out these people from Egypt. And the first thing he does is he gives them law by which that law is going to set them apart from all the other nations. He says to them, look, I'm holy, and therefore you, my people, must be holy. Well, we see that the law written on tablets of stone didn't make them a holy people. Matter of fact, they dishonored God throughout the centuries in many horrific ways. But now in the new covenant through Christ, God is calling to himself and redeeming and saving a new people. And these people he intends, that's us guys, in Christ to have lives that would be characterized as holy lives set apart unto God so that the way in which they live now, this is really important, the way in which they live reflects His holy character. That's what He's doing. That's why He said, I'm going to have to make a new covenant with my people, and in that covenant I'm going to have to write my laws right on their hearts. And I'm going to have to put my spirit within them and actually cause them to walk in my ways and keep my statutes, remember? So now by the spirit, as we live by the spirit, our lives will take on the spiritual flavor so that the people that we live around can see these are a different people. 
They are a holy people. And what makes us holy and produces that holiness in us is the Holy Spirit Himself, you see. There should be a difference in the walk between God's people and the rest of the world. Really distinct differences as the nations, so to speak, around us see us living differently than everyone else, living differently than what they're living as. You know, Peter says something remarkably similar to this in 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. There is a distinction now. He actually takes Old Testament law language given to Israel and he applies it directly to the church. Now, you as the new covenant people, you're going to walk differently. You're going to walk according to the Spirit. So we should be able to see in the general pattern of life, and I'm not talking about in our worst moments or Every single day, all day, remember in this whole context I've said that as we're growing as Christians, it's progressive. It's the nature of sanctification that it's progressive. It's not a moment in time that God makes you perfect. We're growing in this. There's not perfection, but there's progress as we learn to order our lives in a way that pleases God. Sorry, I'm just trying to, I'm cutting on the fly here and deciding what I'm going to do with some of this. Let me read to you some passages from 1 John. Look at 1 John 3, verse 4. You don't have to turn there, I'll put it up on the screen. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. 1 John 3, verses 7 through 9. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God, you see. Born of God by his Spirit. This is going to mark the people of God. First John verses three, uh, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. There is a walk that will follow true faith in Christ as the Spirit works within a person, as the Spirit produces this holiness, they become different people. This is one of the reasons our Lord Jesus had to warn us that we would be persecuted for righteousness' sake. That as we not only proclaim righteousness as a church, but as we begin to order our lives and our families in a righteous way that pleases God, that the hostile world who hates God's law does not submit to God's law, indeed cannot submit to God's law, will persecute us. They will not like us. And we're supposed to be okay with that. No, we're supposed to be more than okay with that. We're supposed to rejoice in this. We're seeing that we are set-apart people. 
Now, secondly, let's look at these verses 5 through 8 for a moment. And he brings up something very important here. The people of the Spirit will walk according to the Spirit, and the people of the flesh will walk and live according to the flesh. And they're going to do that because of the state of their mind and thinking. That the way they think as spiritual people is going to be different than the way they think as fleshly people and as the way they thought before they became spiritual people. And that thinking, that mind, is going to direct the behavior. This is really important. So look at verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now notice he's not giving a command to do anything in that verse, is he? He's just presenting a statement of fact. This is how it is. Those who live according to the Spirit, they're going to set their minds on things of the Spirit. They have spiritual minds. And those who live according to the flesh, they're going to set their minds on the things of the flesh. They have fleshly minds, and you're going to be able to see this worked out in the behavior of their lives, in the way they order and structure their lives. The problem, of course, with those who set their minds on the flesh is that to set the mind on the flesh, Paul says in verse 6, is death. But to set the mind on the uh, spirit is life and peace. Now listen to this in verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In our natural state, the way we thought, whether you recognize this or not of yourself, your way of thinking, that worldly way of thinking, the worldly way of viewing things and ordering your lives, and the way you viewed sin and righteousness and salvation and all of those things were actually hostile to God. That's why no matter how moral your life was, how outwardly moral it was, it was a life that was not pleasing God because your mind has been unchanged by the Spirit of God. You have nothing but a worldly mind. You know, if you've ever, if you ever as a spiritual person now, sat and talked to a non-Christian and you just start talking about life, I mean, give yourselves 45 minutes to have a conversation, and you start to detect, do you not, do you not start to detect that there is a different way of thinking from those who do not have the Spirit to those who do? Matter of fact, this is one thing that should set the people of God apart from everyone else, is the way we think about things, the way we approach life, the way uh, we approach our eternity, the way we approach our money and our relationships and our marriages. It's all different. We think about it differently than the world does because the world is fleshly-minded and we have the Spirit of God, whether we're conscious of that in the moments, and now our minds have been enlightened by the Word of God because the, the things of the Spirit are primarily, if not almost exclusively, found in the, on the pages of your Bible. Those are the things of the Spirit, by the way, that actually shape the way you... Th- thinking. This is why we say that Christian people have a biblical, listen, worldview. 
The way we view everything is different. The way we think is different, and therefore the walk that follows that is different. Here we are, a people who aren't living exclusively or even primarily for the here and now. That's one primary way, isn't it? Spiritual people become a heavenly-oriented people. We're not willing to just give all of our efforts to right now gratification or what we think right now is going to make us happy or the absolute accumulation of as much wealth and possessions as we can get. That would be a worldly way of viewing things. Spiritual people are different. They're looking forward to the kingdom to come. They're looking forward to eternal life and future with God on a new earth in glory. That's what we're actually looking for and we're actually living for now. There's a difference in the way of thinking between spiritually minded people and worldly minded people. Worldly minded people can find many other things to do on a Sunday morning other than come together with God's people and worship and listen to a sermon, yet another sermon out of Romans 8, right? But spiritually minded people are different. No one here except maybe the kids are here by force. (laughs) Your spiritual mind knows this is where you need to be and the people you need to be with. You know, we read earlier in 1 Corinthians the very fact that these things that I'm preaching to some, it falls on deaf ears like there's no understanding of it. They might grab the concepts of what I'm saying, but there's no real internal comprehension to the things of God. That only comes by the Spirit. As a young boy and teenager, I grew up for 18 years under the Word of God and being taught the Word of God, and it did nothing internally for me. And these stories really meant nothing to me until I received the Spirit. And now my mind changed about the Word of God, you see. Spiritually-minded people think a certain way. Fleshly-minded people think a certain way. And those minds, either informed and enlightened by the Spirit or not, will direct the walk of a person. They will walk according to the way that they think. And then verses 9 through 10, Paul says this, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now notice this. First of all, for the people of God, again, an assurance. If you know you're trusting in Christ, you are not of the flesh. It doesn't even apply to you in this sense. You are of the Spirit. If indeed now, the Spirit of God dwells in you. But then he makes this clarification here. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of 
Christ, remember he's saying the Spirit of Christ because this is a Spirit that both comes from Christ but was also in Christ in his life and ministry. As Christians, we're living by the same Spirit that Jesus did, our Lord and Savior. If you don't have him, though, you do not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, notice to have the Spirit in you is to have Christ in you. The Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Son. These are distinct persons. But to have the Spirit in you is to have the presence. Listen how exciting this is, okay? To have the presence of the living Jesus Christ in you right now. Remember, Jesus promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. And behold, I am with you all the days, even until the end of the age. How is he in us? He's in us and with us by his Spirit within us. To have the Spirit is to have Christ among us. And even in this worship service, a room full of people indwelt by the Spirit, Christ is present. And if you have my understanding of the corporate worship service, I would say present in a unique way among us all. You see, Christ is here with us. Christ is dwelling within us. And remember that no matter what you walk through this week, even if what you walk through you have to walk through alone, no one else can accompany you. Christ is in you. This is what Paul, I think, meant in 2 Timothy when he had to stand trial. Everyone deserted him, he said. But the Lord stood with me. He was there with me in those moments, encouraging me, helping me. It's a wonderful truth. And he says, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. I think this probably means a few different things. But our bodies are dying and corruptible and decaying. And yet, no matter how bad our bodies get, racked with old age and arthritis or disease or whatever, I'm in my late 40s, but I wake up every morning, I feel like I got hit by a train. I don't know what happened. I never felt like that before. I sprung out of bed. But no matter how dying our bodies become, the Spirit in us is life. The eternal life that Jesus promised is in you now. It's not something, when you think about eternal life, don't think about something you might get one day. You have it residing in you. This is why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, so we do not lose heart, right? We don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. That's happening, friends, by the Spirit. Every day, we are, our inner self is being renewed by the Spirit. And this certainly is what Jesus is referring to in John 11, verses 25 and 26, when He says, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die because my life is in that one who believes in me through the Spirit that I will give him. This is why Christians, one of the ways we think, friends, differently than the world is about death. 
We do not think about death and dying in the same way that the world thinks about it. Because we understand that ultimately death holds no authority over us. It has been destroyed and defeated in our Savior, you see. The Spirit of God who resides in us is the guarantee, the down payment of this eternal life that we have. And the simple fact of the matter is, when you come to die, your soul keeps on living. It goes right into the presence of God. There is no disruption in it. It is a life that cannot die. It's not subject to it, you see. You just keep living as the body dies. You keep living right into eternity and go into the presence of Christ, which Paul says, wow, that's far better, you see. It's far better to be with Him. This is why when we think about the way of thinking that directs our lives, the mind of the Spirit, it views death now completely different. How tragic, how dark it is for people who do not have the hope of eternal life within them where all they have is this world. No wonder they're in such a, on the one hand, such a pursuit of gaining everything they can and squeezing out of this life every ounce of enjoyment they can possibly do no matter the cost because this is all they have. And no wonder large portions of the culture are so depressed and anxious and out of their minds. Why? Because they have no hope. They have no life in them. This is all they know. And the more they approach the end, the harder it gets for them. Friends, I've had the privilege of speaking now to many people, many dying, mostly elderly people coming to the end and I I just had the privilege of talking to one earlier this week on the phone. And he says to me, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go be with the Lord. You know what a difference that is in the way of thinking of that man compared to the rest of this world? Some remain in denial right up until the very end, fighting against it tooth and nail, the true believer can say, this is not the end for me. This isn't even the preface to the first chapter. I have an entire eternity awaiting me when I physically pass away. We are guaranteed in this passage, friends, eternal life. We are guaranteed the resurrection. And the people of the Spirit think that way and it directs their life for that eternity and not for the now. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. It is truth. Thank you for the hope that it gives us. Thank you for the life that you've given us in Christ. And I pray even as we celebrate the Lord's table now that you would would allow us to commune in a unique way with the living Christ within us who is present with us now in that unique way. And we ask it in his name. Amen.